Welcome to the reading of the Quad City Times for Tuesday, February 6, 2024. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Your readers today are Dale Finnegan and Doug Kretzinger. And now here's Doug with our first story. Front page, uh, article, Reynolds sending assistance to border. Third time Iowa law enforcement will be sent to Texas. This is written by Aaron Murphy, Gazette Lee Des Moines Bureau. And the dateline is Des Moines. After a weekend trip to Texas, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds said Monday she plans to, for a third time, send Iowa law enforcement officials to assist Texas authorities with security efforts at the U.S.-Mexico border. During a news conference Monday at the Iowa Capitol, Reynolds repeated her criticism of how Democratic President Joe Biden's administration has enforced federal immigration laws and cast doubt that Congress would be able to pass border security legislation. She traveled to Eagle Pass, Texas on Sunday to join Texas Governor Greg Abbott along with 12 other Republican governors at a news conference where she did not speak. Back Monday in Iowa, Reynolds said she is working with Texas authorities to once again send Iowa State Patrol officers and Iowa National Guard troops to aid Texas authorities with border security efforts. For three years, Texas has been on the front line of the most serious national security and humanitarian crisis of our time, and Governor Abbott has led the response, Reynolds told reporters Monday. Having no option but to protect itself, Texas is enforcing the law by denying illegal entry and detaining those who attempt it. If the federal government won't do the job protecting Americans, the states will step in, she said. Other states' assistance to Texas is needed because, she said, the federal government has not sufficiently addressed historical spikes in illegal migrant crossings at the U.S.-Mexico border. She attributed increases in fentanyl seizures, drug overdose deaths, and human trafficking to illegal immigration issues. The details of the pending deployment are still being worked out with Texas authorities, Reynolds said. It will be the third time Reynolds has deployed Iowans to assist Texas authorities with border security. In 2021, she dispatched 30 Iowa State Patrol officers. Last year, Reynolds sent 31 Iowa State Patrol officers and 109 Iowa National Guard troops for separate one-month deployments. The pending mission will again be funded by federal pandemic relief funding from the American Rescue Plan that Biden signed into law in 2021 and Reynolds opposed. Last year's deployment cost $2 million, according to the governor's office. The Gazette has asked the governor's office for information on the funding source for her travel to Texas this past weekend. The governor's office said Reynolds' trip to Texas over the weekend was paid for by the Republican Governors Association. Iowa National Guard has deployed to the U.S.-Mexico border on three other occasions since 2020 in response to a separate federal request, the governor's office said. According to the Associated Press reporting on federal figures, arrests for illegal border crossings from Mexico reached an all-time high in December since monthly members have been released. The Border Patrol tallied 249,785 arrests on the Mexico border, on the Mexican border, in December, up 31 percent 
from 191,112 in November and up 13% from 222,018 in December of 2022. The previous all-time high, the AP reported. Reynolds has, Reynolds, as she has on multiple occasions in the past, exhorted, exhorted the Biden administration's enforcement of border security policies for which she blamed the influx of illegal border crossings. Biden has said there are uh, limitations on what the president can accomplish without congressional action. Asked Monday to com- comment after the news conferences, the White House pointed to remarks Biden made January 30 to reporters. I've done all I can do. Just give me the power. I've asked from the very day I got into office, give me the border patrol, give me the people, give me the people, the judges, give me the people who can stop this and make it work right, end quote. That's what Biden said. Border security legislation is being considered in the U.S. Senate, but Reynolds declined when asked Monday to call for its passage, instead reiterating that she believes the Biden administration should be stronger in its enforcement of immigration policy. She also expressed doubt that the Republican-led U.S. House and Democrat-led U.S. Senate would reach an agreement. Both political parties are guilty in not coming to the table, sitting down and having an adult conversation about what we do moving forward, Reynolds said. I don't have a lot of confidence in, no no due respect to the people that serve out in Washington, D.C. I'm grateful for them, but listen, In this environment, I don't have a lot of confidence in really too much getting done. Here's another article from the front page of the Quad City Times. In big headline, Sweet Dreams Come True. This article is accompanied by a photograph of two people standing on either side of a uh, register counter at a candy store. Um, The two people are owner Joe Endy and general manager Amy Fielding, and they are standing together inside Finn's Sweet Treats at 527 Second Street in Milan. There are shelves and shelves of all kinds of candies and goodies behind them. Here is the story by Gretchen Teske. Milan and Wonkaland probably aren't the same place, but customers would never know it after stepping into the newest candy store in town, Finn's Sweet Treats. And FINS is all capital letters, F-I-N-N-S, all caps. FINS may be a familiar name for locals who may know FINS Grill at 581st Street in Milan. The restaurant is currently closed as the team prepares to move into a larger space right behind the old one. Set in the parking lot behind that is a long black building owner, a long black building that owner Joe Endy calls the FINS Outlet. Located at 527 Second Street, the building will house the new Finn's Grill this March, which will neighbor Finn's Fun Finds, a store for vintage and unique items. Next door to that is Finn AV and IT Solutions. Around the back of the building is where the fun begins with a robot mascot named Finn pointing out the door to Finn's Sweet Treats. The store will be open Tuesday and Wednesday from 11 a.m. until 7 p.m. and Thursday through Saturday from 11 a.m. until 9 p.m. A grand opening is set for Monday, February 12th at 11 a.m. 
The whole goal of the candy store is to inspire nostalgia and imagination, Andy said, making the, the origin story for Finn the robot completely on brand. In a quote, Andy said, The mascot has been my imaginary friend my whole life. I used to draw him when I was a kid, and I turned it into a more realistic drawing about 15 years ago. Inside the new store, the smell of sweet treats instantly invades. The walls are lined with hundreds of candies, from freeze-dried goodies to cotton candy to popcorn. Modern candy options like Sour Patch Kids and Lollipops share shelf space with vintage favorites like Teaberry Gum and Zagnut Candy Bars. Wrapping around the store are clear bins filled with chocolates and gummy candies customers can buy for $3.99 a quarter pound. A slushy machine sits in the corner with a variety of options for flavors, and they're all customizable, Andy said. Customers will be able to purchase a slushy, add in a candy of their choice like Pop Rocks or Boba, and finish it off with a candy straw. In the back of the store, Finns will have shakes, sundaes, coffee, cappuccino, and one of the more unique options, flavored ice cream floats. One entire wall of the Finns, one entire wall of Finns is lined with 72 different kinds of flavored and exotic sodas. They range from ranch to buffalo sauce to bazooka bubblegum, with toned-down flavors like orange and root beer available for those not as adventurous. The sodas are available individually in a six-pack or to be topped with ice cream. Customers who want to top their slushy with ice cream can do that too, Andy said. He calls it a dreamy. Dreaming up ideas and something new for the Quad Cities is what landed him on the idea, he said. Every time we travel, my kids are drawn into a place like this, he said. People always rave about nostalgic offerings, he said. After speaking with a few people, Andy decided he would give it a go. Before opening, he asked customers what they wanted to see and feels confident he has about 80% of those offerings in his store. Making sure there was a mix of old and new in the store was important to him, he said. Customers want a custom Finn's candy bag or a custom sugar-coated option. All they need is a little imagination, and from there the possibilities are endless. That's exactly what a candy store should be about, he said. I want people to have that kid-in-the-candy-store feeling. Doug? Okay, I was reading something there. <laughs> I'm going to go to page three, and uh, in the local section here, a couple stories I'll, I'll read here. Uh, Moline puts uh, schools put on soft lockdown Monday. QCOMM 911-911 received a call about a potential explosive, written by Olivia Allen. Roosevelt Elementary and Moline High School were on a soft lockdown for about an hour on Monday following a call claiming an explosive device was nearby. Police did not find any explosives in the area. At 11.54 a.m., QCOMM 911 dispatch center received a phone call claiming a potential explosive device was in the high school's parking lot. Moline police officers conducted an initial search of the property, which is shared by the schools, during the soft lockdown, which restricted anyone from entering or leaving the buildings. 
School staff and Moline police searched the exterior and interior of the two schools and found no explosives and nothing suspicious, according to a press release from the Moline police chief, Darren Galt. The schools were given the okay to lift the lockdown approximately an hour later. While we are aware that many schools, libraries, and other facilities across the country continue to get hoax bomb threats, we take each one very seriously, Galt said in the release. The safety of everyone is our primary concern. We also take fake threats seriously, and detectives will be working on following leads and working with the Illinois State Police Statewide Intelligence Center and the FBI on coordinating information across other similar cases. The Moline Police Department Criminal Investigation Division is investigating the source of the phone call. Anyone with information regarding this incident is asked to call Crime Stoppers of the Quad Cities at 309-762-9500 or the Moline uh, Moline Police Department at 309-797-0401. And here's a story uh, written by Thomas Geyer. Headline is Davenport Man Charged with Selling Meth. And it was he was arrested uh, uh, Thursday for allegedly trafficking in meth. Christopher Eugene Edwards, 52 years old, is charged in Scott County District Court with one count of possession with the intent to deliver more than five grams of meth. The charge is a Class B felony that carries a prison sentence of 25 years. Edwards also is charged with one count of violating Iowa's drug tax stamp law, a Class D felony that carries a prison sentence of five years. According to the arrest affidavit filed by Bettendorf Police Sergeant Joshua Paul, the Scott County Sheriff's Department Special Operations Unit served a search warrant on April 4 of 2023 at a Davenport residence in the 1800 block of West 7th Street. Edwards was present at the home during the search warrant that was part of a narcotics investigation. From inside the home, officers seized a red bag, inside of which was a pill bottle that contained 19 grams of methamphetamine, and officers also seized a digital scale and a cell phone belonging to Edwards. During surveillance the day before the April 3, 2023, uh, Paul said he had seen Edwards with that same red bag. During a post-Miranda interview, Edwards admitted that meth was his. Paul obtained a search warrant for Edwards' cell phone that had messages indicating he was selling meth. Edwards was released at the uh, was released at the time pending further investigation, and during a first appearance on the charges Friday in Scott County District Court, Magistrate Cynthia Taylor scheduled a preliminary hearing in the case for February 9. Edwards was being uh, held Saturday night in the Scott County Jail on $30,000 bond, cash, or surety. According to county, uh, Scott County District Court and Rock Island County Circuit Court records, Edwards has a criminal history dating back to 1991 that includes felony convictions for fraud, burglary, and meth possession. And the third one here on the, this page is entitled Historic Steam Locomotive Stopping in QC. And it is a picture here of uh, an old-time locomotive and a ch train chugging down the, down the railway. It's written by Andrea Grumbaugh, 
This year, Canadian Pacific Kansas City will celebrate the anniversary of its recent merger by giving residents and trained fans from all across the country the chance to see a historic locomotive up close, including in Davenport. Starting April 24 in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, uh, CPKC will be kicking off its historic Final Spike Anniversary Steam Tour. In addition to celebrating the history of both railroads, the event will also celebrate the Empress 2816, a 4-6-4 Hudson-type steam locomotive built in 1930. Our combination on April 14, 2023, brought together two railroads with long and proud histories that together created the first and only railroad network connecting North America. This special cross-continental journey of the 2816 steam locomotive serves as a reminder of our past and a celebration of our future, CPKC President and CEO Keith Creel said in an announcement. Creel went on to say the final uh, Spike Anniversary Steam Tour will be the first ever steam-powered passenger train in North America to traverse Canada, the U.S., and Mexico in a single trip. During this tour, Public events will be held at 11 scheduled stops on its way to Mexico City, giving residents and visitors a chance to see the 2816 up close, learn more about both it and CPKC's history, and enjoy the Puffer Belly Express mini train model. The 11 scheduled stops include a stop in Davenport on May 10. Other scheduled 2816 tour stops include Moose Saskatchewan, Minot, North Dakota, St. Paul, Minnesota, Franklin Park, Illinois, Kansas City, Missouri, Shreveport, Louisiana, and Laredo, Texas. For more information about the tour, you uh, residents uh, can visit the railroad's website, and that is uh, cpkcr.com forward slash en forward slash community forward slash final hyphen spike hyphen steam hyphen train forward slash. I get to do the food stuff, I guess. The best thing I ate this week, written by Gannon Hannibal. Today, it's fried egg sandwich at Red Band. It was only a matter of time until I wrote about this sandwich. I've definitely had over a dozen since moving to the Quad Cities in September. I've munched on them while writing music columns. I've grabbed them on the way to the office. I've walked over to Red Band Coffee Company on my lunch break so often that I'm certain their staff knows my hangry face. The story goes like this. Mere days into my first week as an entertainment reporter, I was told that Red Band has the best breakfast sandwich in town. And then I was told that again by a half dozen more people. I'm a fiend for a good egg sandwich, but all the praise made me admittedly skeptical. There was just no way it could live up to the hype. My favorite coffee shop in my old home city of Phoenix, Arizona, had a breakfast sandwich on an everything bagel that I'd die for. Could there really be another? Could I really move on? Was this true love or simply a rebound sandwich? Even after trying Red Band's fried egg sandwich for the first time, I thought, yeah, that's pretty good. I enjoyed it enough to try a few more times, but I wasn't sure if it would be my favorite. Maybe the bar was set too high. 
But a week later, I ordered one again, and again, and again. And let me tell you, these little handheld breakfasts have a way of grabbing a hold of you. They beckon me from their closest perch on 4th Street, and I answer the call at least once a week. They've risen in the ranks of my taste buds from the easiest thing I ate this week to the best thing I ate this week. And so, here we are. The dish, fried egg sandwich. The fried egg sandwich at Red Band is served on fresh-baked Tolera bread, which bears a resemblance to a mini ciabatta for the uninitiated. Inside are two fried eggs, cooked somewhere between over medium and over hard, smoked gouda, salt and pepper. It's the simplicity that makes this sandwich so tasty. It doesn't try to be too much. The bread has a crunch to it that juxtaposes against the almost liquid meltiness of the smoked gouda. The two layers of fried egg give the inside some padding, so you're sure to be full enough after the most important meal of the day. And the cracked black pepper gives it just the smallest amount of kick. For a small upcharge, you can also get the fried egg sandwich with chorizo or sausage. I still probably prefer the simplicity of the classic, but I've tried both and they're solid options too. The sausage has a borderline sweetness to it that makes for a nice change of pace, while the chorizo has its signature sour spice. I typically opt for the sausage if I'm going the meat route, but you can't go wrong. The price is $6.50. The basic fried egg sandwich is just $6.50, but making it one of the cheap which makes it one of the cheapest meals I've written about in this column so far. If you add sausage or chorizo, that price ticks up to $7. If you're looking for a morning kickstart too, I recommend their caramel latte, which starts at $4.80. It's pretty sweet. But with three espresso shots inside, it gives me enough energy to make it to 4 p.m. Red Band Coffee Company has two locations in the Quad Cities, both in or near downtown. My go-to location can be found at the Red Brick Building at 329 East 4th Street in Davenport, but the original Red Band Building is at 110 West 13th Street. They're open from 6.30 a.m. to 2 p.m. daily, with breakfast sandwiches served until 1 p.m. The ambiance? Good for on the go. There is no dining area at Red Band Coffee Company, as the place is explicitly for to-go orders. They've got a drive through for those picking up a meal or coffee on their way to work, and a walk-up window for those with pets. If you do decide to stop in, there's a small waiting area, but it's all pretty minimalist. There's a plexiglass partition separating you from the barista zone and zero seating. It's an approach I have to respect, a sort of, we have coffee and food, you want coffee and food, let's not beat around the bush here, situation. Red Band's downtown location is also adorable from the outside. The red brick architecture in minute, in minute construction, minute construction, makes a memorable and something of a neo-iconic spot downtown. It's become such a staple of my weekly dining rotation that when my friend passed through town on a cross-country road trip and asked where to stop for coffee and a quick bite, Red Band is where I sent them. They weren't disappointed. You won't be either. Thank you very much, Dale. I'm going to go into the health section here. 
February is American Heart Month. Power of three for heart health. Focus on a trio of important numbers. I'm going to read them here and um, go through them a little bit. May not finish it totally, but it says many tests and numbers can help you manage your overall health. But when it comes to heart health, you need to focus on the big three, blood pressure, cholesterol, and blood sugar. These best predict cardiovascular disease risk, including heart disease, heart attack, and stroke, says Dr. Howard Levine, internist at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. Your doctor can direct you about which numbers and ranges you should aim for and the best ways to achieve them, says Levine. Levine, I'm sorry. Here's a look at the big three, why they matter, and how to measure them. A blood pressure reading has two components, systolic pressure and di diastolic pressure. Systolic pressure at the top number represents the pressure in the blood vessels when the heart contracts to pump blood. Diastolic pressure, the bottom number, refers to the pressure in the vessels between heartbeats. While both numbers are essential for diagnos diagnosing and treating high blood pressure, doctors primarily focus on systolic pressure. Most studies show a greater risk of stroke and heart disease related to higher systolic pressures rather than elevated diastolic pressures. That's especially true in people 50 and over, says Lewine. Blood pressure is measured in millimeters of mercury, MMHG readings are categorized as follows. Normal blood pressure, less than 120 over 80. Elevated blood pressure, 120 over 80 to 129 over 89. Stage uh, 1 hypertension is 130 over 80 to 139 over 89. Stage 2 hypertension, 140 over 90 uh, and higher. If either component of your blood pressure is above the normal range, your initial action should be lifestyle changes which includes losing weight if necessary, increasing daily physical activity, eating more fruits and vegetables, and limiting salt intake. Many people don't need to have high, uh, perfect blood pressure, says Lewine. You and your doctor can decide on your personal goal numbers, which may be higher than the magical 120 over 80, or possibly lower if you have heart disease or other cardiovascular issues. And he adds that a home blood pressure monitor is the best way to regularly check your blood pressure. Look for a model with an upper arm cuff that automatically inflates. Devices with a wrist cuff or fingertip sensors are less accurate. Make sure the cuff is the proper size, as two small cuffs can give a false reading. And Lewine suggests taking measurements twice daily, morning and evening, for several days to get a baseline reading. Blood pressure should be lowest when you first wake up and typically rises in the late afternoon and evening. After that, take readings daily or every other day for the next couple of the weeks. You should alert your doctor or any changes to any changes outside your personal goal range that last longer than a few days, says Lewine. And cholesterol. Cholesterol is a fatty substance that occurs naturally in body. Different forms of cholesterol and other fats, lipids, uh, circulate in the blood. A traditional uh, blood lipid panel measures low-density lipoprotein, LDL, cholesterol, high-density lipoprotein, LDHDL, cholesterol, total cholesterol, both LDL and HDL, and triglycerides. And doctors primarily focus on bad LDL cholesterol levels because of their close connection with the amount of fatty plaque buildup inside arteries, raising the risk of heart attack and stroke, says Levine. Your goal level for LDL depends on your risk factor profile in general. The lower the number, the better. If you already have cardiovascular disease or are at high risk for it, you should aim for an LDL of less than 70 milligrams per deciliter. 
MGL slash DL. Achieving less than 100 MGDL with lifestyle changes is reasonable for people at average risk. You and your doctor can decide if you need to take a strain or a satin, statin drug to lower your LDL. However, if you do not have cardiovascular disease and have no risk factors for it, an LDL level of 100 to 130 may be acceptable. In general, triglyceride level of less than 150 mgdl is a good goal with levels between 150 and 500 mgdl the usual strategy to lower levels is by moderating alcohol intake losing weight cutting back on carbs all right and finally blood sugar keeping track of your average of average blood sugar levels even if you don't have diabetes also can help access your health at your your heart health a blood test for hemoglobin A1C measures your average blood sugar glucose levels over the past three months. The test can be done any time during the day and does not require fasting. Results can determine if you have pre-diabetics, if you have pre-diabetes or undiagnosed type 2 diabetes, diabetes, either of which greatly increases your risk of cardiovascular disease. If you fall into one of these categories, you will likely want lower goals for both blood pressure and LDL cholesterol. And it goes on to say, many older adults with prediabetes don't progress to full diabetes if they maintain a healthy weight, exercise regularly, and eat a healthy diet, says Lewine. But prediabetics indicates a need to pay even more attention to other, to all other cardiovascular risk factors. Dale? You are listening to the Quad City Times on IRIS the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And it is now time for the obituaries from the Quad City Times. Starting off with David N. Baker, age 91, of East Moline, Illinois, who passed away Saturday, February 3rd at Clarissa Cook Hospice House in Bettendorf. Services are at 11 a.m. Thursday, February 8th at Van Ho Funeral Home, 1506th Street, in East Moline with Pastor Ronald Philpot officiating. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Wednesday, tomorrow, at the funeral home. Burial will be at National Cemetery in Rock Island with military honors conducted by the Vietnam Veterans of America. Dave was born April 4, 1932, in Andersonville, Indiana, to Thurman and Charlotte Robbins Baker. He married Dorothy A. Newkirk November 3, 1956, in Connorsville. He served in the Air Force during the Korean War and retired as a major from the Air National Guard. He worked as a transportation management specialist for the Rock Island Arsenal, retiring after 22 years. Dave was a member of Northcrest Calvary Baptist Church in Moline, and memorials may be made to the Quad City Animal Welfare Center in Milan, Illinois. Online condolences may be made at the website Van Ho. V-A-N-H-O-E dot com. Michael J. Baird, or Mickey. Mickey Baird, age 49, of Rock Island, passed away Friday, February 2nd at Unity Point Health Trinity in Rock Island, surrounded by loved ones. Visitation will be from 4 to 6 p.m. on Thursday, February 8th, at Whelan Presley Funeral Home and Crematory in Rock Island. Those wishing to attend graveside services at Rock Island National Cemetery on Friday, February 9th, please meet at the funeral home at 9.15. Military honors will be performed at the cemetery, and memorials may be made in care of the family. 
Mickey was born April 29, 1974 in Moline to Michael and Deborah Holland Baird. Mickey served in the United States Marine Corps from 1994 to 98. He worked as a roof sales associate at A-plus Roofing and Siding Company. Mickey was a member of the Quad Cities Tennis Club and enjoyed playing pickleball. He lived his life actively, participating in events such as the Tough Mudder and Spartan Runs. Mickey also enjoyed cooking. The most important thing in Mickey's life was his family and his friends. He showed how important his family was to him by taking the time to go through his genealogy, making a collage of his family dating back 100 years. Mickey loved being outdoors and active in sports with everyone, especially on his planned Sunday fun days at Hodge Park. Mickey was known to have a smile that lit up the room and was always the life of the party. Condolences may be expressed at the website wheelinpresley.com. Let's see. Dorothy Edna Bargman, age 99, of Davenport, passed away peacefully at home, surrounded by her family. A graveside service will be held at 11 a.m. Thursday, February 8th, in the Fairmount Cemetery Mausoleum. Dorothy was born to William and Henrietta Hoscht on August 23, 1924, in Rock Island. Dorothy graduated from Davenport High School in 1943. She married Kenneth Bargman on March 3, 1946, and they were happily married for 70 years before Ken passed away in 2016. Dorothy and Ken moved to Minnesota in 1957 and lived in Aurora until 2015, then moved back to Davenport to be closer to family. Dorothy is survived by her children and uh, grandchildren and a grand dog. The family would like to thank the Jersey Ridge Place staff who loved and cared for her and the residents who befriended her and filled her days with fun and laughter for the last three years. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to Genesis Hospice and online tributes and condolences may be made at the website therungemortuary.com, T-H-E-R-U-N-G-E, mortuary.com. And I'll go ahead and do one more. Basila G. Valley, age 96, of Bettendorf, died Sunday, February 4th, at her home, surrounded by her family. Funeral services and mass of Christian burial will be at 11 a.m. Thursday, February 8th, at Our Lady of Lords Catholic Church in Bettendorf. Burial will be in Mount Calvary Cemetery in Davenport. Visitation will be on Thursday from 10 until 10.40 a.m., when the rosary will be prayed before mass. Memorials may be made to Our Lady of Lords Catholic Church. Halligan McCabe DeVries Funeral Home is assisting with arrangements. Basila George was born on November 27, 1927, in Depew, Illinois, to Raphael and Tomasa Razo George. She was united in marriage to Frank H. Valley on May 29, 1948. He preceded her in death on March 23, 1994. Basila loved to cook and taught many in the family how to. She was known for cooking, especially Mexican cuisine. She made homemade tortillas well into her 90s. Basila was deeply devoted to her Catholic faith with a great devotion to the Blessed Mother Mary. She prayed the rosary daily, each with a special intention for someone in her family. Online condolences may be expressed by visiting the website hmdfuneralhome.com. Okay, 
going to move into the opinion section now of the Quad City Times. This is another view, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, uh, and it is uh, headlined. It says, Wide Support for Protecting Kids Online Solution is Politically and Technologically Possible Even If Zuckerberg is Insincere. Last week's made-for-TV Senate grilling of several of America's top tech moguls drove home the serious issue of harm that social media platforms can do to children. It also demonstrated, yet again, with performative and at times outright clownish grandstanding by senators, why a political solution has been so elusive. But that doesn't mean there's nothing Congress can do. What came through all the sound and fury of the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing is that these companies' biggest fear is being exposed to lawsuits holding them accountable for their negligence regarding content. They currently enjoy almost complete legal protection from such suits, courtesy of Congress. That can and should change. Washington is predictably polarized on how it should change with the left and the right targeting different issues. But the hearing showed how much bipartisan agreement there is on the particular urgency of combating online child sexual exploitation, revenge porn, social media harassment, and other scourges that have made childhood a more treacherous landscape than it was before the digital age. The top line moment for most of the country was the gratuitous, gratuitous takedown of Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg by Senator Josh Hawley. The Missouri Republican pressed Zuckerberg to apologize to the audience of families of young online exploitation and harassment victims. Zuckerberg did, sort of, standing and turning uh, toward the audience and saying he was sorry for anything you have gone through, he said. One audience member, the father of a teenage suicide victim, later told CNN the viral moment was meaningless and awkward. Transforming broad agreement into action is difficult because of Section 230 of the Communications Act. The 1990s-era federal provision gives online platforms legal protection from being sued over content that users post to their sites. Traditional media don't have such protection. Newspapers, for example, can be successfully sued for libel for publishing letters to the editor that are false and defamatory. But Congress reserved special protection against such litigation for online media in the early days of the Internet in recognition of the technical difficulties companies would have in policing the mass amounts of data that users put on their sites. That principle is still reason enough not to repeal Section 230 completely, as some critics have suggested doing. Social media is so hardwired into society today that opening Internet content to unfettered litigation would invite political, economic, and cultural paralysis. And that's before even getting into the politically fraught question of what exactly should constitute legal actionable content. But a more targeted loosening of Section 230, removing the company's lawsuit protection regarding online exploitation and other offenses related specifically to children is an idea worth exploring. 
Another opinion today written by Eugene Robinson is titled, Relax, Mega Bros. Swift is not an enemy to fear. Trying to demonize two of the most beloved phenomena in American culture, Taylor Swift and the Super Bowl, is an insane political strategy. So this must mean the MAGA-addled far-right has lost its collective mind. How else to explain the way some of former President Donald Trump's most fervent supporters have reacted to Swift's very public romance with Travis Kelsey, the Kansas City Chiefs star tight end? When cameras showed the couple kissing last Sunday after Kansas City's victory in the AFC Championship game, I could almost hear the pop, pop, pop of MAGA heads exploding like bubble wrap. As one example, former GOP presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy, who has endorsed Trump, went so far as to embrace a tinfoil hat conspiracy theory that the fix is on to guarantee that Kansas City wins the Super Bowl and that Swift and Kelsey will then announce their support of President Biden. Ramaswamy posted this, I wonder who's going to win the Super Bowl next month. And I wonder if there's a major presidential endorsement coming from an artificially culturally propped up couple this fall. He posted that on X, formerly Twitter. And when some replies accused him of being paranoid, he stood his extremely shaky ground by saying, what the mainstream media calls a conspiracy theory is often nothing more than an amalgam of incentives hiding in plain sight. Once you see that, the rest becomes pretty obvious, end quote. An amalgam of incentives, in quotes, whatever that's supposed to mean. The only obvious fact is that something about Swift sparks irrational fear and anger among some of Trump's highest profile and most vocal acolytes. And it's clear that her relationship with Kelsey makes that reaction even more intense. In December... After Time Magazine named Swift its Person of the Year, right-wing commentator Jack Prosobiec posted a mega yawp on X. He posted this. The Taylor Swift girl boss, PSYOP, has been fully activated. From her hand-selected vaccine shill boyfriend to her DINK lifestyle to her upcoming 2024 voter operation for Democrats on abortion rights. End quote. There's a lot to unpack in those two sentences. Calling Swift a girl boss communicates misogynistic resentment of her success and popularity. Claiming that she is participating in a psyop conjures the existence of a shadowy puppet master, of shadowy puppet masters who are somehow controlling her every move, which would seem to contradict the whole girl boss thing. The bit about the vaccine shill boyfriend refers to television and digital ads Kelsey has done for Pfizer, urging viewers to get vaccinated against the coronavirus. D-I-N-K, in capitals DINK, is short for double income, no kids. A nod to the far-right view that childlessness at Swift's age, she and Kelsey are both 34, is somehow unacceptable. It would be one thing if these delusions were being spewed only by click-seeking online blowhards. But Stephen Miller, the radically anti-immigration former Trump administration official, who would probably be one of Trump's most influential advisors if he became president again, 
is on board. He mused, What's happening with Taylor Swift is not organic. But it is totally organic. Swift is in the middle of the biggest and most lucrative worldwide concert tour in history. To make it to the February 11th Super Bowl in Las Vegas, where the Chiefs will play the San Francisco 49ers, she will have to hustle from a scheduled show in Tokyo. She is a self-made billionaire because of her genuine, her, excuse me, for her because of her genius for writing pop songs with earworm melodies and stiletto-sharp lyrics that connect with legions of quote Swifties around the globe. Kelsey is the best tight end in the National Football League, one of the two brightest stars, along with Patrick Mahomes, on the best team of our era. He already has two Super Bowl rings and is a lock for the NFL Hall of Fame. Why wouldn't anyone who is vaguely interested in celebrity couples be interested in this one? I don't know anything about Kelsey's politics. Swift has endorsed a couple of Democrats in the past and advocates for women's and LGBTQ plus rights. But so far, she hasn't spoken out about this year's election. I think what's driving folks on the right so crazy is that they want to claim football as their sport. Macho, regimented, nationalistic, violent. They see Swift as the antithesis of, the, of those things. They see her as an interloper, an invader. Even a 10-second cutaway shot of the girl boss cheering at a Chiefs game is unbearable. Chillax, dudes. Don't be such snowflakes. Sit back and enjoy the game. And you can cover your eyes if there's another kiss. Okay, it's time to uh, move on to sports. And... Uh, Gilbreth hired as Assumption football coach is the uh, top story on the sports page. And it is uh, written by Tom Johnston. Wade King stepped down as coach in December. The search for the new Davenport Assumption high school football coach didn't have to stretch very far. Nate Gilbreth, who has been an assistant at Moline High School for the past three years under Mike Morrissey, has been tabbed to fill the role vacated in December. Gilbreth replaces Wade King, who stepped aside after 22 years leading the Knights program and accruing, uh, accruing a 152-71 record. According to Assumption Principal Bridget Murphy, who chaired the coaching search committee, Gilbreth will be teaching social studies at the high school. This is the 29-year-old's first head coaching job, and he admitted it was the first opening he looked at seriously. I thought about others, but they just weren't the right fit, said Gail Brith, noting that faith is a big part of his background and foundational beliefs. I wanted to find a job that fits my personality the best, my values the best, and a place that has strong values and a community that wants to have success. He said that his background made this a job to go after. Not only is he a lifelong quad Sitinian, quad Sidian, he was born in Davenport and raised in East Moline, but understands the role of the private school. He is a 2013 Alleman High School graduate who received his college degree from St. Ambrose in 2017. His coaching background includes stints on staffs at Kiwani High School, Alleman, and Moline. He feels as if the experience he gained in those positions has prepared him well for taking over his own program as well as following a coaching legend. 
I've been really blessed getting to work with Coach Dave DeJager, Coach Todd DePorter, Coach Morrissey. He said, I've had really good mentors. That's a lot of experience. I just know from my time at Alleman with DeJager and DePorter that details matter. Details matter. Practicing the fundamentals matter. If we can't do the little things right, we're not going to win a, foot, a, ton, a lot of football games, he said. From both of those stops as an assistant, Gilbreth understands the importance of a sound running game. I know that we have some special athletes coming back in the skill position, said Gilbreth, of what he is inheriting with the Knights bunch uh, that went 7-3 last season and made the Class 3A playoffs. In terms of basic philosophy, we want to control the football and be a run-first offense. If we have a quarterback that can throw it and wide receivers that can catch it, we'll be willing to spread it out a little more. In terms of defense, we want to play fast, play physical, play together, and create turnovers. Gilbert said that he is excited to see where his background takes him. His roots within a Catholic high school were also a selling point for the steering committee. He seems like he embodies all of the characteristics that we were looking for from the standpoint of character, role model, said Murphy of Gilbreth, who she said was chosen from a field of five finalists. He is a person who is interested in educating the total person both in the classroom and out on football field. It was really important to us to try to find the right person to take us into the next era, era of Assumption football. We know that we have a lot of young men who are going to benefit from the youthful enthusiasm of a coach that, I think, has enough experience and is still very excited about making this his program and hopefully for the long term. I have a real passion for teaching, said Gilbreth, who has taught at Seton Junior High the last three years. I don't just define myself as a coach or only a teacher. I love being involved in the community and I love being involved in the feeder program and being hands-on with the younger kids. I love being around kids, both in the classroom and on the field, and making them better in the long run is my favorite thing, he said. Gabreth said also that he is still in the process of assembling his coaching staff, which includes talking to staffers who were in the program last fall as well as others. While King has stepped aside from the coaching ranks and remains athletic director at Assumption, Gabreth knows that he has a valuable tool at his disposal and said that he will use it any way possible. But he also knows he has big shoes to fill. Is it a little nerve-wracking? Maybe to an extent, but I think I'm ready for it. I want to continue that successful tradition and I want to make sure that we continue winning, said Gilbreth. Here's another story from the sports page. This is about Illinois' prep girls basketball. Riverdale enjoying stellar season. This is written by Samir Mala. Unselfishness, that is the key word describing the Riverdale Rams girls basketball team after a sensational conference winning 21-5 regular season. The Rams finished with the most regular season wins since the 2019-20 team went 28-5 and reached the Illinois 2A state semifinals where they fell to Pleasant Plains uh, 42-27. No Rams player has averaged double-digit points this season, but four players averaged between 5 and 9.8 per game. 
We are just playing our best basketball right now, Rams senior Carrie Ann Hungate said. That is what you hope for, and our teammates get us the ball. We are unselfish with the ball, so everyone can score. We are unselfish, echoed senior captain Alex Duke. We do not get mad at each other. We are always hyping each other up and are happy for each other. We do not have any star players, but I think we have a lot of kids that are good in their role and will step up when it is their opportunity, Riverdale coach Jay Hatch said. We just take what the other team gives us. On different nights, different players step up. The Rams finished 6-23 last season and tied for last in the Three Rivers Conference with a 2-10 conference record. What changed? Hatch said, I think we've got a group that really works hard. We were very unsuccessful last year, but for the most part, it's a lot of the same kids, and sometimes it's hard work. You don't get the rewards right then, and it takes a while, and it's a cumulative effect, and I think that's part of it. The Rams have won nine of their last ten games heading into the regional 2A playoffs. Riverdale has won by an average of 18.7 points per game during this late-season stretch, peaking at the right time and winning their first conference title since 2020. That is always our first goal, winning the conference, Hatch said. We are fortunate to get that done. We are loving our one-season turnaround. Now we would like to start working on some more goals. Hungate is averaging a team high of 9.8 points per game for Riverdale, but is appreciative of the past four years playing for Coach Hatch and the Rams. She said, It is definitely really special being a senior on this team. I am hoping that this is something that this program will remember and carry on. Hungate will be attending St. Ambrose University, where she expects to enroll in the physical therapy program. St. Ambrose has a really good physical therapy program, and that's what I intend to do after high school. And their coaches showed interest in me, and I really liked the environment of the school, she said. Duke will be playing an entirely different sport at the next level. I'm going to Augustana College to play softball, Duke said. Their academics are really good, and I just think the campus is perfect for me. Hatch appreciates what both Duke and Hungate brought to the Riverdale Rams the past four years. He said, Hungate is a three-year starter, and she was on the varsity squad as a freshman. Some of the learning curve the last few years has been kind of painful, but she is always a hard worker, and she's one of our captains and leads by example in practice. Both she and Alexis are our hardest workers, which is always a plus. The Rams begin postseason play on Monday, February 12th at 6 p.m. in the Spring Valley Regional, facing the winner of the 10th-seeded Sandwich Indians and the 12th-seeded Salmonock Leland Bobcats. I think I have just a minute to give you just a little bit of local a local brief here. The Davenport Assumption High School of officials are honoring eight senior football players who have decided on college destinations. The gathering is scheduled for 2.30 p.m. Wednesday in the school's large gym. One of those standouts is headed to the sport's top level, that being Angelo Jackson. He is taking a preferred walk-on opportunity in Ames with the Iowa State University Cyclones. Rhett Schaefer landed a spot at South Dakota State University, where the Jackrabbits play in the NCAA Division I Football Championships subdivision. Bauer Caspers 
Grand will go to Grandview University. Dominic Dapril will go to Central College. Will McIntosh Co College. Colin Patterson Wartburg College, and Jake Timmons will go to Grandview, and they are all NCAA Division three programs. Landon Darer will go to Iowa Western Community College and will begin his career at the junior college level. Let's see, one more. Sheet metal show offset for February 17th and 18th. The inaugural sheet metal show off hot rod and race car show is scheduled for February 17th and 18th at the Mississippi Valley Fair Center, Iowa building. Hours are 10 a.m. to 11 p.m. on February 17th, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. on the 18th. An awards ceremony will be held Sunday at noon, and live music will be provided Saturday night by the Flatbed Four. It costs $10 to attend unless you're under 8, then you're free. Well, that brings us to the end of the Quad City Times for today. I'm Dale Finnegan, and my partner at the microphone has been Doug Kretzinger. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. <laughs>